Thank you. Well, we had a good sleep last night in our own beds, and we didn't have to travel far because we're living in Inverloch um, for this time when we're home, which is close to my family. Okay, let's read today from Daniel chapter 5, and we're reading verses 1 to 6, and then across to 17, uh, through to the end. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Um, okay, now we're going across now to verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position that he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdoms at the age of 62. <coughs>
It's great to be here. You've got um, the challenge of, of meeting five new people. We've got the challenge of getting to know 200 new people, <laughs> although we've got some advantage. There are people here we already know, and we didn't even know that we already knew them. So, <laughs> so for example, Isaac, I was at your second birthday party. I don't know if we knew that. <laughs> I don't remember it either. <laughs> And uh, we met uh, some friends from Wales, uh, Julie up there from uh, South Wales. We used to go to a conference together up there in Aberystwyth. And, um, uh, and this morning we met uh, some, friends, uh, some friends from Tasmania who were in the church in Hobart. Um, so it's a small world, isn't it? Uh, but it's great to be, to be here. And it's, it's really exciting to see what's happening at uh, Surrey Hills. It's... Uh, I, I, this isn't a reflection on what used to be at Surrey Hills, but I, I, it was a long time ago that I preached at Surrey Hills, and it's certainly changed. I think the, the average age has obviously come down dramatically, and uh, it's so exciting to see, see so many nationalities, so many uh, different cultural backgrounds in the church, which is such a powerful uh, witness to the gospel, isn't it? Because this is what, this is what the gospel does. And even Sudan, even, sorry, even in Niger, we had some friends who were in uh, Niger, Peter and Anne Davis and their daughters. Yeah. So it's a very small world. Uh, so we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5. Again, it's a long, long chapter, um, but um, uh, we, we've already seen the gist of it in the reading. Uh, I was talking with someone recently about um, the Toronto Blessing. Now, some of you will remember it. It is something, it's, it's a kind of thing that swept through the churches back in the mid-90s. It was very, very big at the time. But when I would mention this to this group of people, they just looked at me blank. Uh, most of them weren't even born at that time. And I, I, looking around the room right now, I think he's probably the same for you. Um, it was before they were born. And I, and I suddenly felt my age, because you don't realise how quickly... You get old. Uh, you forget the march of the years, don't you? And I'm sure we've all had moments like that. Uh, and there is such a moment here. If you look at verse 13 of chapter 5 of Daniel, it says there that Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Daniel had, uh, had once been well known and universally respected as the king's chief advisor. In his day, his name had been a household word. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar. But now, nobody seems to know who he is, except perhaps the queen mother. Daniel who? The same thing happened, of course, to Joseph. Remember in the book of Exodus, at the time of the pharaohs, when the beginning of, of, of the book of Exodus, that we're told that a new king who did not know Joseph came to power in Egypt. Uh, Joseph had been Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, Joseph had saved Egypt from famine. Yeah, he was a national hero, but nobody really remembered him anymore. Joseph who? It happens, doesn't it? And it's happening right now here in Australia. Uh, a new generation has arisen who knows not Jesus. That's far more serious. They, they don't really know who Jesus is. They haven't got the foggiest idea. 
And that's the challenge before us. Uh, people need to be reintroduced to Jesus. I was at a meeting uh, early, late, late last week with Sam Chan. Some of you may know Sam Chan. He works for the City Bible Forum. And uh, he was observing, talking, thinking about the Billy Graham Crusades in Melbourne. You may have seen footage of that. The ABC did a, uh, put some of the old footage on. Uh, it was just an amazing sight. Thousands and thousands of people in the MCG, with Billy Graham preaching the gospel so very plainly, and uh, and and he always, when he was when he when he called people to 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 make a response to the gospel, he would always say, uh, this is one of his catchphrases: uh, "Don't worry about the buses; the buses will wait for you. The buses will wait for you. You come forward; you may not have another chance. Uh, the buses will wait for you." And in some chance, said the light bulb went on. He, he said, "I realised these people came on buses." They, they came and they were dressed for church. And they came from church communities on buses to the MCG to hear the gospel preach. We live in a very different world, don't we? These were people who had a Bible background. These were people who had Sunday school, probably. They, they knew who Jesus was. They hadn't committed to him, but they, they knew who he was. We live in a very different world. The gospel has lost the power and influence that it once had as, as far as the average person is concerned. Christianity has long since passed its use-by date and we're constantly being told that we're now living in a post-Christian era. Jesus is not just... Well, Jesus is just a distant memory, if that, for most people. According to George Barner, the market research man, fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. 60% of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. 12% think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> and, a, and a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that they thought the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. And that's America. America is biblically illiterate, despite what we see about these mega churches. America is biblically illiterate. Well, if America is biblically literate, so too is Australia. And I think this, this book of, of Daniel is ex extraordinarily relevant to where we are today, especially this chapter we're going to look at right now. I don't know if you've noticed how much of the Daniel story is um, part of our vocabulary today. Even though people don't know the Bible, even though people probably never darken the door of a church, everyone knows what it means to go into the lion's den, don't they? I think there's even been a series on telly about the lion's den. Everybody knows what it means to go into the lion's den. Even people who've never heard of Daniel and never read a Bible in their life will understand what it is to have feet of clay. Daniel chapter 2. And now here in this chapter, in Daniel chapter 5, there are another couple of expressions that are still very much part of our everyday speech. The writing on the wall. Weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your days are numbered. That's all part of the way we speak still, isn't it? Even though people have stopped reading the Bible. It's all here in this story of uh, Belshazzar's feast in, in Daniel chapter 5. So let's take a look at that. And I want to say, again, I've got three points. I think I had three points yesterday. I want to open up the story under these three headings. First of all, I want to speak about the wild and willful wickedness of Belshazzar. The wild and wicked, willful wickedness of Belshazzar. 
Uh, it's the 13th of October, 539 BC. We know that because, according to verse 31, Darius the Mede is at the door. Uh, and we know exactly when that happened. What is being described here in this chapter is it's the fall of Babylon. Babylon is going down, and the Medo-Persian Empire is coming in, and it's imminent. So this is one of the great crises of history. And what does is, what is Belshazzar do? Does he declare a state of emergency? Does he call for a day of prayer and fasting? As his father Nebuchadnezzar might have done. Does he summon a council of war? What does he do? Well, you notice how the chapter opens. He throws a huge party. The wildest and the most extravagant party imaginable. Look at verse 1. We're told King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. I mean, how do you explain that? Is it, is it bravado? You know, like, like Sir Francis Drake, you know the story of Sir Francis Drake playing bowls as the Spanish Armada came into sight off the English coast? Off the coast of Plymouth, there's someone here from Plymouth, I know, I met him last night. You know that story? Is that what's happening here? Is he just bluffing? Is he just brazening it out? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Is that what he's saying here? Or, or is it escapism? You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Certainly the booze was flowing freely, and in a scandalous breach with their protocol, Belshazzar has invited his royal harem to the party, not only his wives, but his mistresses. It was a drunken orgy, wine, women, and song. It was designed, no doubt, to take people's minds off the, uh, the current the imminent threat of evasion, invasion. So while his kingdom is under threat, Belshazzar is drinking himself under the table. Some time ago, uh, a man by the name of Neil Postman, uh, who's not a Christian, he's a sociologist, I think, he wrote a, a book about television and its influence on, uh, on our culture. And, and the title of the book was Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing ourselves to death. That, that's, that was his thesis. It's not so much like the George Orwell thing, the big brother is watching us, though that seems to be happening as well. It's, 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 it's that we've, we've trivialized everything. You, know, you, on the, you, you can't even watch the news, really, without being entered. It's, it's infotainment, isn't it? It's not information that we're getting. And so you get some massive tragedy that's covered in a, in a few sound bites, and then onto something totally trivial next. And now for something completely different. And, and, and we're amusing ourselves to death. And, and that's what Belshazzar is doing here. That's what we're doing in our culture in Australia today. Maybe you saw that uh, a brilliant film. Um, uh, of, I think it was called Downfall. Any, uh, anybody see that film? You know, it's the last days of, of Hitler's um, regime. Uh, set in the bunker there in, in Berlin. And... Uh, as the Russian guns uh, could be heard outside in the streets of Berlin, uh, the, the action takes place inside that, that, that bunker. And we know that eventually, of course, Hitler and Eva Braun 
shot themselves and Gerald's wife poisoned her own children and committed suicide with her husband but many of the others in that bunker in the very last days of the Third Reich many of the other German officers their wives and mistresses simply danced and got drunk and lost themselves in debauchery until eventually the Russians came and killed those who were left that's the picture here that's the sort of thing that's happening here Belshazzar instead of shoring up his city ready to repel a Persian attack decides to throw a party instead and he, he calls the nobles together for one last fling before the inevitable occurs that's what's happening but it's there's something more there's something else happening it, it's more sinister than that as if that wasn't bad enough it's it's more sinister than that because did you notice this party has religious overtones. It's a religious feast. They're not just drowning their sorrows. They're invoking the ancient gods of Babylon. Look at verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So remember that the temple had been destroyed and the uh, these... Uh, uh, tab uh, these um, goblets of gold and silver had been removed from the temple and, and now Belshazzar is, is giving orders that they, these gold and silver goblets be taken and so that the kings and nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them so they brought in the gold goblets that they'd taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them as as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Do you see what's happening here? It's sacrilegious. It's deliberately so. I, 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 I rather suspect that Belshazzar kind of blames the, this crisis that he's facing on Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. It's because his father Nebuchadnezzar had turned to the God of the Israelites, to the God of the Bible, as we saw last night. See, chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar's confession of faith in the God of Israel. And chapter 5 begins with Belshazzar's contempt for the God of Israel. This is a show of contempt, isn't it? Take the goblets of gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem. Let's, let's drink to our gods out of these cups. It's a deliberate, calculated provocation of the God of heaven. Uh, George Bernard Shaw once went to a party with a, with a group of atheist friends and he told them that at midnight he would commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And as the party went on and it drew closer and closer to midnight, many of his friends just slipped away into the night and when midnight came, he did exactly what he said he would do. i spare you the details. And then he said, nothing's happened. I haven't been struck by lightning or anything like that. As if to say, I told you so, it's just a little rubbish. A deliberate provocation. Nothing happened to George Bernard Shaw that night. Although, I'm sure he regrets that night now. But something certainly happened to Belshazzar, didn't it? 
Look at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. That brings me to the second thing that I want you to see here. In contrast to the, the wild, willful wickedness of Belshazzar, I want you to see in the second place the warm, winsome witness of Daniel. The warm, winsome witness of Daniel. Now, Daniel, by this time, is a, he's an old man. Uh, by anybody's standards, he's uh, probably in his 70s or 80s. That's young, isn't it, some of us? Uh, he was only a, a teenager in chapter 1 probably about 14 or 15 when he was brought to Babylon. But now he's in his 70s or 80s. Everybody's forgotten about him except perhaps the Queen Mother, she who must be obeyed. Um, she, may, she possibly may have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife, his widow, or maybe his daughter. Uh, we're not quite sure about that. And anyway, so they send for Daniel. And isn't it ironic that the only person who has anything to say in this crisis is Daniel. The, the professional advisors, the enchanters and astrologers and diviners are silent. Uh, the political pundits and the PhDs and the social analysts have got nothing to say. They can't read the writing on the wall. They don't know what it means. They're afraid to speak. They, they just don't know what to say. Quite, quite possibly they haven't even seen this ghostly graffiti. It's a bit like uh, you know, the emperor's new clothes. Nobody else can see it except him. Like, like Banco's ghost in Shakespeare's Macbeth, it was simply the projection of the king's tortured conscience. And so there's an awkward silence. All that could be heard uh, was the sound of the king's knees knocking. <laughs> so look at verse 8. All the king's wise men came, came in. They couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant, so King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled, and then in comes Daniel, with a word from the Lord. I mean, how often that happens? I've been in ministry now for 45 years, a very long time. I can't remember how many times I've been to the palliative care ward, how many times I've sat by a person dying. And nearly always there's a conspiracy of silence. <laughs> the doctors and nurses don't say anything. Uh, the relatives avoid the subject altogether. Uh, nobody knows quite what to say. It's time to call the vicar. <laughs> What's his name? Old so-and-so. You remember we used to send kids to Sunday school, you know, when he wanted a bit of free time? Is he still alive? <laughs> you know, remember he took granddad's funeral. Uh, got his number somewhere. And so they wheel out old Daniel out of retirement. Of course, there's no retirement for Christians, is there? And so they wheel out Daniel in his old age. Be always ready, Peter says, to give an answer to those who ask you the reason for the hope that is in you. And here is old Daniel. And they've pensioned him off. And they've forgotten about him. They've put him on the shelf. He's passed his use-by date. And yet he is ready to give them an answer. Be always ready to give an answer to those who ask you the reason.
for the hope that is in you. Not for the money, you understand. Verse 17. You can keep your reward, he says. You can't buy God's servants with money. Keep your gifts for yourself, he says. Give your rewards to someone else. And that, that brings me then to the climax of this chapter. The writing on the wall. The writing on the wall. Verse 25. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Those are weights and measures. Mene is a, uh, a weight. It's about weights. And uh, tekel is... Um, uh, so many names means they're numbered, and tekel means weighed, and parson means divided. So that the message written on the wall is numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. That's the message. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. In other words, the game's up. The party's over, Belshazzar. Your days are numbered. You, you. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. God is going to judge your shallow, empty, flimsy life. Your kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to the Persians. This very night, your soul is going to be required of you. Remember the story that Jesus tells of the, the man who was uh, very successful. His business was booming. He had to build larger barns. He had to expand his business and... That very night, his soul was required of him. Puts a bit of a dampener on the proceedings, don't you think? This writing on the wall. And it took great courage for Daniel to, to interpret that writing. It's, it's never easy to give an after-dinner speech, especially if uh, you're going to talk about God and sin and judgment. And there are more than a thousand people in the room and most of them are drunk. It's hardly a sympathetic audience, is it? But Daniel is not at all phased by that. He just tells it as it is. He speaks God's word faithfully into that crowd. The writing's on the wall, Belshazzar. It's time to repent. It's, it's, it's well past time to repent. It couldn't be plainer, could it? But does he hear it? Does he receive those words from the Lord? I mean, what a, what a mercy that God should speak to him at all. But does he listen? Does he hear? Look what it says there in verse 29. He's in denial, isn't he? You know, that, that he, couldn't, he couldn't be starker. It couldn't be more plain, plain, more plain than this. Your, your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balance. You've been found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And what does he do? At Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. What kingdom? It's just about, it's just about to be taken away from him. He's in denial, isn't he? He hasn't heard a, he hasn't heard a word that Daniel's been saying to him. It happens to me like that every Sunday. Go to the door and people will line up to shake hands with you as you go out, as they go out of the church. And nice sermon, Pastor. <laughs> I, I sometimes feel like saying, "Nice sermon." That was a very nasty sermon. If you were listening to it, <laughs> what do you mean, nice sermon? Boy, I love your Welsh accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but did you hear a word I said? <laughs> See, that's what they're doing here with Daniel, isn't it? Well spoken, Daniel, yeah, clothe him with purple, give him a gold chain. 
But they haven't heard the voice of God in that sermon, have they? Is that how you come to church? Are you listening for the voice of God? Are you praying that God will speak to you through his word, even if it convicts and challenges? Look what happens. Verse 30, that very night we're told, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth they gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Now Nebuchadnezzar had learnt that, as we saw last night, but Belshazzar didn't. So here, here we are, back to back in this book. Two proud kings, side by side. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Like the two thieves on either side of Jesus on the cross. One was saved and the other was not. One cried out to the Lord in mercy, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. The other just shouted blasphemies. And as J.C. Ryle has said, one was saved so that we need not despair. The other was lost so that we dare not presume. That's the challenge of, the, of, the, of these two stories side by side, isn't it? Will you be an Nebuchadnezzar or will you be a Belshazzar? So what does this have to say to us uh, this morning? Well, for God's people... It's a great encouragement because, you see, we too are living in a collapsing civilization. Titanic forces dominate the scene. The writing is on the wall for our society. I don't think that's overstating it. Like the saints in Daniel's day, we too, we Christians, are in exile. Increasingly, we are marginalized and, and forgotten about and lampooned and ignored. Isn't that right? Especially here in this Marxist state of Victoria. <laughs> but don't let that stop you speaking out. Because God will always have the last word. Always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you the reason for the hope that is in you. And for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, perhaps you're just checking him out, perhaps you're here with some friends who are Christians and you're not sure yourself where you stand. For those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, this, this whole story, you may not realise this, but this whole story was written with you in mind. Do you realise that? It's not obvious, but, but these chapters are actually written in Aramaic. Chapters 2 to 6 of the book of Daniel are written in Aramaic. The rest is in Hebrew. But why, why these chapters in Aramaic? For the same reason that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. So that the Gentiles might understand. Aramaic was the lingua franca uh, of the Persian Empire, which was about to envelop Babylon. And, and this story, you see, is in Aramaic. It is a tract for the times, if you like. It's written not just to bolster up uh, the flagging morale of the Hebrew saints. It's written to challenge the Persians who are standing in the wings, ready to take over. And the question is, will you be a Nebuchadnezzar or a Belshazzar? The writing is on the wall. Soon you too will have to give an account of yourself to God. Our days are numbered. Our times are in his hand. 
And it's, it's, and it's not just interpretation that we need. It's not just someone to come along and teach the Bible to us. It's not just interpretation that we need. Important as that is, and helpful as that is, vital as that is, it's propitiation that we need, isn't it? Let me try to explain what I mean by that as I close. Do you remember those words from Colossians, where Paul says in Colossians, he talks about the handwriting that was written down that was against us. He's talking about the cross there in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. And he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross and how Jesus forgives us through his death on the cross. And he says that Jesus has blotted out, taken away the handwriting that was against us. It's not a very comforting thought to think that there's something written down. Perhaps in, in your own handwriting that could be used against you. I remember uh, when I was yet fairly young, uh, a cousin of mine who was a bit of a bad lad, he'd been in prison and he wanted me to sign something. He wanted me to be a kind of a guarantor of a loan that he was taking out or something like that, I think. And I, foolishly, I just signed this piece of paper. I had many sleepless nights worrying about it, knowing that there was something that was written down in my own handwriting that could be used against me. I remember when we moved to London, um, we lived in London for 12 years and came from Wales to London and learning, well, trying to navigate the traffic in London was, was quite a challenge. Um, and uh, I can remember when we first arrived, the only way I could find my way around London was to follow the bus routes. And I can remember, we, we live fairly near the centre of London, and I can remember, I, I know where the number 36 bus goes. I'll just get in the car and follow the number 36 bus, so that'll be okay. What I didn't realise was that uh, they have different rules for buses than they do for cars in London. And so uh, at uh, Camberwell Green, I turned right, followed the bus, turned right down the, the Walworth Road, and got stopped by a police car. Didn't know what I'd done wrong uh, until he explained to me, you know, there's a, did you see that sign that you went through? It says, no right turn except for buses. <laughs> and I, I was quite... You know, I didn't feel guilty about that. I just, uh, when he just arrived in London, I didn't know that. Didn't make any difference. He got his little notebook out. <laughs> and he wrote down in his notebook the, the offence that I had committed. Now, I didn't feel guilty. But I was guilty. I'd broken a law. And the record of that had been written down in his notebook. And could have been used against me. Thankfully, he must have forgotten about it. Because I never got summons or anything. Or fined. But it was uncomfortable to know that something, there was a record of something that I had done that was wrong and it was written down and it could be used against me. That's what this is telling us. If you're not yet a Christian, this is what you need to know. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting and everything you've ever done or thought or said and the things that you've not done, which you should have done, all these things are written down and they can be used, and they will be brought into court on that last day and could be used against you to condemn you, eternally condemn you. But you see, do you see the good news of the gospel? Do you see what Christ has done for us? He's taken that handwriting, that, that record of our sin and guilt, and nailed it to his cross. 
That's how they crucified criminals in the Roman Empire. They took the charge sheet and they would nail it to the cross. That's ostensibly, that's why they got rid of Jesus, because he claimed to be king of the Jews. And that's what they put. They nailed the charge sheet to the cross, king of the Jews. Politically, that was the reason they got rid of him. <laughs> but you know what was really happening on that cross? My sin. Oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to that cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That handwriting that could have been used against me, that record of my sin and guilt, he took it. He took it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, sometimes like uh, Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar, we, uh, we forget that our days are numbered. We think we're going to be here forever. And Lord, sometimes in the pursuit of our own empire, we forget that we have immortal souls. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What does it matter if this man is the most powerful man in the whole world? If in the process of getting there he loses his own soul. So Lord we pray that you'd speak to us this morning through this episode. And through the tragedy of Belshazzar. To warn us that we too need to get right with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you've shown us the way through the cross of Jesus for our sins to be forgiven. And we thank you in his name. Amen.